Amen. Well, we're continuing through the Ten Commandments, and uh, the way we kind of fashioned things was to make sure that today uh, the kids were in children's church because we're going to talk about, well, the, the Seventh Command, and, and I guess... I guess if I was going to rate it, it would be rated PG-13, in part because of the scripture verses we're actually going to read from from the Bible. You see, I I, I have this fundamental um, belief that the church doesn't, doesn't teach well in the subject of sexuality. And what we've done is we've kind of allowed the culture to define it for us. And yes, we hold to our, we hold to our um, understanding of what the Bible teaches, but sometimes we're afraid to, to teach those things, we're afraid to speak those things because it has that word sex in it. So instead of, um, in, instead of kind of shying away from those things, we, we need to talk about it. Because our culture is one that is really focused on sexuality. You see it everywhere. You see it in music. You see it in movies. You see it in TV. You see it in advertisements on TV. Sometimes I sit there and I I look at TV and and there's a commercial on. And and I go, what does all of that have to do with bubblegum? And, and I think, my goodness, how far we've come in, in our world. Now, the tension of all this is that the church in general, throughout the ages of the church, has kind of, um, kind of has had a, a held a mixed message of, of human sexuality, sexuality. It's gone from being very uberly, restrictively conservative, right up through just being very liberal. And, and it kind of anything goes. Before the Protestant Reformation, the Catholic Church was kind of the main um, religious entity in, in, in the world. And they had a view of um, sex. And I'm talking about husband and wife, marriage, covenant marriage. They had a view of it that it was, it was a necessary evil at best. And that a husband and wife should only partake in that act if they wanted to um, have kids. And that was it. There there was no other reason for a sexual expression within marriage. In fact, the priests of those days would counsel husbands and wives, it's just better to abstain at all. I mean, just don't get involved with things like that. One of the, they call him the, one of the original four church doctors, Ambrose, um, he was an influence on Augustine. Ambrose would write that um, married couples should be ashamed of sexuality. And Augustine would kind of, kind of piggyback on that, and he said, well, though it's legal, meaning it's not against the, um, the law within the church, that any time you enter into an expression of intimacy between husband and wife, it's a sin. So that passion is a sin. And so this is kind of the restrictive extremes that faith kind of latched onto. 
And then the Protestant Reformation happens. And what I find very interesting, those who would begin to bring sexuality back to a biblical perspective were the Puritans. Go figure. Now, the Puritans, um, they began to um, kind of take a stand against marital celibacy. They encouraged romantic love. Um, They would teach that intimacy between husband and wife was not only important and necessary, but in the eyes of God, it was pure. And they also began to legitimize the role of wife, of the wife in the relationship, meaning that the husband was not just the primary person and then the wife just kind of was there for, for arm or eye candy, that the wife played a predominant role in that. And so they started to bring back a, a biblical teaching on what God has established in, in sexuality. Because if we were to understand the biblical view, we have to understand that it is a gift from God. This physical union between husband and wife was God's idea in the first place. We didn't think it up later on and go, hey, wow, this works quite well. God had established this. God told Adam, cleave to your wife, meaning like uh, be intimate with her, um, Love her in a way, be together in a way that's just kind of geographical, but the, the, um, the, the, the coming together of heart and soul, in the Hebrew they call it dode, the mingling of souls. Cleave to your wife, be fruitful, and multiply. And if you ever read the Song of Songs in the Scripture, it's... In many of the places, it can be very erotic, not pornographic, but it doesn't hold any punches. Let me show you what I mean. The Song of Songs in chapter 1, now it's kind of broken up into the words of a female and the words of a male. This is the words of the female. Let me kiss him with kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like a perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. Take me away with you. Let's hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. And then a response of the male side in chapter 4 says, How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are like doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. I wouldn't recommend the whole flock of goats thing in this day of age, but (laughs) I guess back then it was... Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David built with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. These these are the words that God uses to describe relationship between husband and wife. And if this comes as an embarrassment to you or to the Christian, it's probably because that we have become more prudish than God actually is in the area of sexuality. Within the church, I do believe that our culture has perverted it beyond what God has intended it. These words were inspired by the Holy Spirit preserved for us for thousands of years. And so, 
to understand our own sexuality, we have to understand marriage, and we have to understand how God has designed us. If you read Proverbs chapter 5, verses 15 through 19, it speaks on how God celebrates intimacy between a husband and wife. Intimacy. I'm talking about sexuality. In the eyes of God, sex is about love, it's about pleasure, it's about joy in the context of a husband and a wife, in the context of, of marriage. And to protect that, to protect this God has given to humanity, he makes sure that he adds to that the seventh command in Exodus chapter 20. And the seventh command simply reads this. That's not the seventh command. Did I write, did I put down there? This is the seventh command. You shall not commit adultery. Pretty straight up. You should not commit adultery. Adultery is simply defined as marital infidelity. It's the sexual intimacy that will break the covenant of marriage because a husband and or a wife has gone outside of the covenant and has engaged in that, in that intimacy. The primary focus of this command is to protect marriage. It's to protect the family. Adultery shatters trust. Adultery... Um, can shatter a marriage. Adultery can, can hurt deeply. And, and for many, the marriage is over if those things occur. God looks very highly on the covenants that he establishes in marriage. It's a big deal for him. The Old Testament, the penalty for adultery is death, both the man and the woman. But if we're going to talk about this, we need to understand that sex is not the only way to commit this idea of adultery. Sex is not the only way that we break the seventh commandment. The Ten Commandments talk about, kind of they, they list for us the extremes of the consequence of sin. Murder, stealing, dishonoring parents, coveting. But as you work through the ten, you'll understand as we've been kind of going through it that they also speak to the lesser things that will lead us to what the command says. So we say, do not murder, but God speaks against things like envy and greed and hatred and anger. And so there are things that lead up to adultery. Most adulterous relationships don't begin with the act of sex. There are things that will lead up to it. There is, there is innocent flirting. There is emotional connection. There's these little steps that are taken before. There's things that happen within the marriage relationship that are lacking or they're not being taken care of. And so all of these things lead to, lead up to breaking the seventh command. And we have to be aware of those things too. And, and a man and a woman... There should be a, a distance that is maintained between men and women who are not married and are forced together in some type of relationship. It could be a work relationship. It could be friends. Whatever it is, there needs to be boundaries. There needs to be some type of distance put in there, a healthy distance. 
so that these things that lead to breaking the seventh command aren't partaken in. And so husbands and wives need to nurture love. Husbands and wives need to nurture um, an emotional connection, a spiritual connection, and also a physical connection. It's important. And as we press into the seventh command, what we talked about last week was the rule of categories. And the rule of categories says that what's covered in these commands is a theological uh, expression of ideas. And it says that what's covered in the command, all those things that are in the same category are also not acceptable in the eyes of God. And so maybe we can have this read, um, you shouldn't commit sexual immorality because it goes just beyond adultery. We have to consider things like fornication. I hate that word, but as a pastor, I'm required to use it twice a year. And so that's my one. Fornication is sex outside of marriage. And the Bible comes against that to say, no, it's not okay. You know, as a pastor, especially in my days as a youth pastor, uh, many would come to me and um, the question was, well, well, how far is too far? And my answer, which I won't tell you the exact verbiage I used then, but my answer would be, if you become sexually aroused in what you're doing, you've gone too far and stop it. But see, the problem, the problem isn't in the, the actions. Well, the, well the, the main problem doesn't begin in the actions. It begins with the question. Like if you're trying to figure out what you can get away with, you better check your life because you may already be in sin from what the Bible speaks about sexuality. The questions that people should be asking who are not married is a question of how can I make sure that this relationship honors God in in all aspects? And by honoring God, you will honor one another. And when we honor God in the relationship, God then honors that relationship. And so to start at a disadvantage in a relationship because you have not honored God and therefore not honored each other it's not a healthy way to begin. Some other things that are, I believe are ruled out are prostitution, um, same-gender relationships, sexual violence, rape, even sexual violence within, within a marriage, abuse, emotional or physical, pedophilia, incest, incest. All of these things, it's No. So the seventh commandment forbids any and all sexual, t- sexual activity that will violate the marriage covenant. There's no exceptions and there's no loopholes. There is no how far can I go before. Now within the world, we know that some of these things stand in very stark contrast to what the Bible will teach. Especially in the, in, in the area of, say... Um, Sex before marriage. I mean, come on, Dennis, it's 2018. Everybody's doing it. It seems to be old-fashioned. 
sex is not bad. In fact, God has designed it to be a very powerful force for good. Mutual in- intimacy between a husband and a wife, it, it cements a marriage together. It seals that bond of marriage. Timothy Keller, um, the pastor of uh, the Presbyterian Church in New York, a great writer, uh, he describes it as the covenant cement. And that's why as husbands and wives, we're almost commanded to be intimate with each other. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking about um, frequency. You are not to go home and say to your spouse, mm-hmm, hear what the pastor said, mm-hmm. <laughs> Unless it works. And whoo high five. No, I'm only kidding. <laughs> but here's what the scripture talks about it. Hebrews chapter 13. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all sexual immoral, and all the sexually immoral. So, what it means by the marriage bag being kept pure is that place of intimacy needs to be kept pure by husband and wife. And in order for that to be kept pure, there has to be that physical relationship. And then in First Corinthians, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent for, for, and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. God knows that as sexual beings, we will lack self-control. Now, I will say in this, um, if you believe intimacy with your spouse is a duty, then I suggest good counseling. Because this is what God has gifted husband and wife with. The act of, of coming together. And when people try to isolate sexual pleasure, they always end up hurting themselves and hurting people around us. If you read C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, he talks about this, this idea of you can't just take sex and separate it from marriage because it degrades it and it will hurt, eventually hurt those involved. So if intimacy is, is the superglue between husband and wife, then then using that glue to join things that should never have been joined in the first place is to cause problems. There is a spiritual connection when a man and a woman come together in intimacy. Whether you're married or not, there is a joining that takes place. And if it's not in the covenant of marriage, and then you go and you join to another and to another and to another. And you can only give so much of yourself away before you do yourself spiritual and emotional damage. And so things that should not be joined haphazardly or with the idea that it's only temporary, they should not be joined together because separating them, separating them is going to hurt.
God has created sexual intimacy to be a force for good in the covenants of a husband and wife. And also, if you press into this idea through the Scripture, you will see that sexuality and spirituality are very closely related. That, that, a, human, uh, yeah, that a union between husband and wife is used as an example for the relationship between God and his people. This idea of marriage, the intimacy of marriage, is also used uh, to describe the intimate relationship that God has with us, that we should have with God. And as husband and wives give themselves to each other in all things and in all ways, God gives himself to his people and desires that we would in turn give ourselves back to him with that depth of intimacy. And if you read through the Old Testament, passages will continually compare God's relationship with his people to husband and wife. And when when his people would go and worship other gods, false gods, God would call them out as committing adultery. It's a spiritual adultery. They have broken the intimacy of the covenant that God has established between us and him, him and us. If you read the second chapter of Hosea, the entire chapter speaks of the, adul- the adultery that the people have um, taken part in by worshiping false gods. Jeremiah chapter 3, the first 10 verses, talks about the adultery of the people. In fact, God, said, God likens them to a prostitute who has many lovers. His people, as they go out and they worship false gods. And so there's, there's something um, about the marriage relationship that mirrors or should mirror the relationship that God has for his people. And in the New Testament, it's, it pushes this, this um, symbolism, this comparison even, even further, and it likens the relationship, uh, marriage relationship, to that of one with Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 5. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Paul is talking, going all the way back to Genesis, when he's talking about God creating man and woman, and what is the response of man and woman, of the, um, the covenant of marriage. But then he says this, he pushes this thing deep into the mystery of God. This is, well, he says this is a profound mystery, ta-da. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. And so this two becoming one flesh, this intimacy between husband and wife is an example of the relationship between the church, us, and Jesus. And so if we break this seventh command in all of its forms, then we are performing a a spiritual defilement against God himself, against Jesus. Our bodies, the Bible teaches our bodies, are a member of Christ. Our bodies are in Christ. Our bodies are for Christ. And so sexual sin is committed against not only ourselves, but against Jesus himself. 1 Corinthians, do you know that Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord 
is the one with him, is one with him in spirit. And when it talks about prostitute, it's talking about promiscuous sexuality. If you are united somehow in a promiscuous relationship, then you are sinning not only against uh, yourselves, which the scripture talks about, that, that it's against your own body, but you're, 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 you're standing in direct um, rebellion to the things of Christ. Later on in these passages, Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. It's a sin against our own bodies, and our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. So a person who has a sexual relationship with someone other than their spouse violates the relationship that we can have with Jesus Christ. We show our love to God by taking our relationships here very serious and maintaining a biblical purity. And so we maintain a biblical standard of sexuality. The scripture teaches that we are not our own, that we have been bought with a price. And the price is the blood of Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You know, um, people have always looked to be loved. I mean, it's, it's a fundamental human desire that we would be loved. I think it goes beyond just being loved for what we can do or what we can provide. Just being loved for, for who we are. But I find in our culture that people are constantly looking to be loved, but they stop at sex. And they say, I've found it. And I believe that's why immorality is such a high level right now in our, in our country. I don't know if it's, if it's any worse. I don't know if it, we just are more aware of it because we have instant information um, across the world. But research tells us that the average American adult will view sexual material about 10,000 times a year, and that is not those who are viewing pornography. This is just your average Joe Sue watching TV, looking at billboards, reading a magazine. 10,000 times a year. By a ratio of 10 and 1, televised relationships, those sitcoms that we watch on TV, by a ratio of 10 to 1, they involve a sexual relationship outside of marriage. So what that says is for every one relationship that has innuendo of a sexual relationship. For every one that is represented in marriage, there are 10 that are represented outside of marriage. This has had extreme consequences on our culture, and they're not really good ones. We have become a hyper-sexed culture. And, and right away, the church wants to go and blame our culture. And, and I guess some blame could be put there, but, but here's what we have to be very careful of. That sexual immorality is still very prevalent within the church. Don't think that we have a, a pass on it. Because Christians do get caught up in the same sexual sin as people who would not consider themselves Christians. See, the problem isn't necessarily cultural. The problem is one of the heart. That's where it begins. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus teaches that if you look at a woman lustfully, meaning if, if you look at a woman with, with sexual innuendo or how 
that woman can fulfill you in some way that is not your wife. If you look at that woman, you have committed adultery with her in, her, in your heart. It goes way beyond uh, the act. When we look at another person as an object to fill some sexual desire in us, it's called adultery. And so the thoughts that we entertain, the language that we use, the jokes that we tell can all break the seventh command. Most sexual sin begins or has its foundation in a lustful arrogance. I'm not getting my needs met. I deserve better. I want this. I should have that. And we begin to take small steps in the wrong direction. And those steps snowball and snowball and snowball until we've done something to the point of we will suffer consequence. We are all called to a sexual purity. For those who are single, take yourself out of the situations that will cause you temptation. Don't put yourself in that situation. Watch the things you view. Watch the things you look at. Watch the people you hang around with. Don't give in to what the culture says is okay. Paul says it's better to be single like he was, but if you can't be single, then you should be married instead of burning with desire. And so if you're single and your desire is to be married, then begin long before you get married living in a way that that engages characteristics of marriage. Begin to live in a way that you're sacrificial. Begin to live in a way that you become... Um, a, a servant, because those are characteristics of marriage. Sacrifice, serving. Get used to those things being part of your life. Make sure you, you're friends with people. Make sure you have people in your life that can speak strength and encouragement in the areas of purity, sexual purity. Be very aware that we live in a culture that is sexualized. Be on guard and put healthy boundaries in your life. And be very on guard with pornography. It is much too easy to see it everywhere and on the internet. And it destroys healthy, it destroys a healthy definition of sexuality destroys it doesn't weaken it doesn't make it kind of eh destroys it nothing objectifies a woman more than pornography nothing wrongfully depicts sexuality more than pornography and for men we are the ones that fall into temptation much much more than women men are visual guard yourself against it whether single or married don't allow yourself to fall into that trap. Husbands, wives, remember what Paul said. We're to give ourselves over to each other in intimacy. And a lack of intimacy in a relationship that isn't mutual 
it very well can mean that there are problems within that relationship that need to be addressed. Go to counseling. Speak to someone. Don't give the devil a foothold. What did Paul say? Only separate yourselves for a certain amount of time to commit to prayer, then come back together again so you don't give Satan a way into your relationship. There is a mutual submissiveness of husband and wives that Ephesians chapter 5 talks about, that we are to submit to one another in reverence for Christ. So as we look at our relationship with him as the most important, out of reverence, we submit ourselves husbands to our wives and wives to our husbands. And husbands, in your spiritual authority, intimacy starts long before the bedroom. It starts by loving your wife as Christ loved the church. If you demand submission from your wife, I will guarantee you're not living in a way that Christ has called you as a husband to live. Because when a woman is treated, as the Bible says, by her husband who is loving her and serving her, giving himself for her, the natural response for that wife is to love back. Now, there are exceptions to that rule, I understand. But in a very generalized way, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And if you have failed, if you are failing, if you're being tempted to fail, here is the good news of the gospel. That God will strengthen you for the days of head that you can go to him in repentance and be 100% forgiven and restored. There is no sexual sin too great that God cannot forgive, God will not forgive, and God cannot restore. No, No sin too great that he will not forgive for one that goes to him with a brokenness in their heart to say, I'm sorry. Marriages have been restored from adultery because of the humbling of husband or spouse. It takes a while, but God forgives. God restores. Clean slate, 100%. The story of of David and Bathsheba is probably one of the most famous in the Bible about adultery and conspiracy and pregnancy and murder. I don't think Hollywood could have created a better script for tension and and for malice and for undermining and secrecy. And in 2 Samuel chapter 11, the the scripture says that what David had done displeased the Lord. See, David is just kind of moving along and the story says that he sees this woman, has to have her, she's married, he doesn't care. He has a relationship with her. She becomes pregnant. He tries to cover it up, has, his hus- has her husband killed. And it says that God had seen the whole thing and what David had done displeased the Lord. You see, in Proverbs chapter 5, verse 21, it tells us that, a man, that, that all of a man's ways are before the Lord. That means everything that we do, God sees us. That means everything that we think, God knows what we're thinking. Everything that we say, God knows what we've said. And God ponders all our paths. He, he sees everything. We cannot hide from him. 
He knows all of the secrets that we try to keep. Well, when David realized, when he was called out, when he realized his sin, he came to a place of recognizing that before the Lord. See, in everything that David did wrong, in, 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 in lusting after Bathsheba, in using his authority to make her come to the, to the palace, and having a relationship with her, and trying to cover up her pregnancy, and having her husband killed, all of the thing, all of the poor, poor decisions that he made, there was one decision that he made well, and that he went to the Lord humbly to ask for forgiveness. His heart is recorded in Psalm 51, and I want to read it to you. This is what David writes. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb and taught me wisdom in the secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach your transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and may my mouth declare your praise. Do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem, and then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous. And burnt offerings offered whole, then the bulls will be offered on your altar. David knew that burning lambs or bulls wasn't going to make it right before the Lord. His sacrifice was his spirit was broken when he realized what he had done. And he says, God doesn't despise a broken spirit, a heart that's humble before him. There is no sin big enough that God will not forgive for those who come before him. There is no brokenness, brokenness big enough that God cannot heal when we come before him in brokenness. There is nothing that you can do 
that will separate you from God's love. Yes, our actions will separate us from relationship, but never his love. You know, sexuality, um, it's one of those things that people like to keep to themselves uh, in, in the area, especially in the area of sin. And so, but I want to give us knowing the, the expanse of breaking the seventh command from word to thought to deed. I want to give us a time to repent before the Lord. And so I'm going to read sections of this psalm that David wrote, the psalm that led him back to God and empowered God to forgive him because of his heart. And so as I read these, let them sink into your own heart if there's a place in you, a thing in you that you need to repent from to seek the Lord in forgiveness. Have mercy on me, God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take away your Holy Spirit. By the power of God, I want to say this over you that you have been restored to the joy of your salvation. You have come before the Lord with a broken and contrite heart. And he is pleased. Now receive the forgiveness you've sought after. And as Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. Father, thank you for the words of David. Thank you for the words of Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for reconciliation. Thank you that you can establish, reestablish those who have fallen. That it's your good pleasure to reconcile relationships, to reconcile husbands and wives, to, to free those from the addictions of sexuality. And so, Father, we receive that spirit, the spirit of power and authority over the darkness that is in this world. May we continue to walk with you and in you. And may we show grace to those who are struggling, have struggled, and have sinned. That by our words, we would lead them back to Christ. That they too will find forgiveness. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Um.
before you go, I just want to let you know that Dave Miners, he sits over here. Uh, he was hospitalized on Friday for a UTI, um, pretty bad. Um, as the older generation gets older, um, those things wreak havoc on them. And Dave being 65, he had 105.5 fever, which sent him into a place of delirium. And um, they got him to the hospital. He was almost septic. And so um, he's doing better. I'm going to go see him after church today. They pumped him up on all kinds of antibiotics, but continue to pray for him. Uh, he's going to be at the hospital for a couple of days as they kind of make sure that this thing doesn't come back. Um, so, yeah. So I love you guys. Uh, we'll see you next week.